0: it's all your 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. All right, the big news of the week here, of course, is the auto strike that began at 12 a.m. last night. And uh, once again, the latest uh, inflation reports, CPI and... PPI, producer price index, consumer price index. So we want to talk about both of those. And last week, you know, I said I really want to get to this question of uh, what's exploitation. And we started to talk about that last week. So once again, in what time remains, uh, I want to pick up on that third theme uh, for today's show and continue that ex- explanation. Uh, so let's just jump right into talking about the auto strike, which is sort of uh, the latest uh, event here in in labor negotiations. Well, we've seen a whole number of key labor conflicts, you might say, in negotiations, starting last year with, of course, uh, the railroad workers and uh, The Democrats, Biden and Pelosi, bringing the railroad workers to heel here uh, by threatening them with uh, strike anti strike legislation and scaring the shit out of the rest of the union leaders that it may impact them as well, uh, and uh, forcing the uh, railroad workers into a settlement. Uh, it was easy to do that, relatively easy, because you—what do you got? Eight or nine railroad work or unions based upon different crafts. So, you know, the uh, employers and railroad company CEOs and uh, the government uh, can play one against the other and break their ranks and so forth. That—that that was always the case in uh, history of uh, union negotiations. We have all these craft unions instead of uh, one big union. Uh, So that was the beginning of the whole test case, and that turned out pretty poorly for labor. Uh, But in the past year, we've had a number of uh, other key uh, union negotiations here, as you probably heard. Uh, We had the recent uh, Teamster uh, negotiation uh, conclusion. We'll talk about that a little bit. We've had— I uh, probably didn't hear much about it, but the West Coast Stock Workers Longshore ILW Longshore Union Settlement, uh, the airline pilots uh, settlement. Uh, we have um, the very important uh, strike by writers and uh, actors, which is still ongoing. And uh, now into the scene comes the uh, auto workers negotiations here and uh, the strike that began last night. Uh, it's it's historically important because uh, the auto workers uh, ushered in uh, the concession bargaining trend uh, over 4 decades ago that's been going on ever since unions and workers giving up some of the great gains they made during the 1970s giving them up and then more some it's called concession bargaining really began in 1979 with the chrysler strike And uh, Jimmy Carter intervening and uh, putting pressure or agreeing with uh, the then president of the UAW, Doug Fraser, to force Chrysler auto workers into big concessions. They lost the strike, big concessions. And then um, Doug Fraser, the then head of the union, gets a seat on the corporate board for his assistance to Carter uh, and uh, that started it all. We'll talk more about that concession bargaining uh, trend. And uh, is it coming to an end? Is the question here. This is the great historic question with this series of union negotiations this year. You know, the Teamsters and uh, longshore workers, airlines, all of which uh, are transport industry. Unions, you know. The good thing about transport is that you can't offshore it like you can car production or steel production, right? Uh, So the weapon of offshoring, which is a a weapon uh, both uh, uh, the corporations and their friends in Congress have used to really uh, uh, batten down uh, labor uh, for 40 years now. Uh, That doesn't apply to the transport sector because you can't uh, offshore. You can't offshore public government either, right? And public employees have done relatively better than other private sector unions like the UAW. UAW at one point in the late 70s were like two million members. They were the biggest union, them and the Teamsters. Teamsters had almost almost two million. Uh, So uh, what are they now? They're just a shadow of themselves. Uh, union membership in the private sector, and it's not government workers. Private sector is down to like six or seven percent uh, when the concession bargaining uh, real trend really began under Carter, and then accelerated, of course, under Reagan. Uh, union unions represented about twenty-two percent of the total labor force uh, today is down to in the private sector at six seven percent, about ten percent when you put public workers uh, into the totals there. Uh, But anyway, what we're we're talking about is uh, this whole concession bargaining trend, or what I call labor's Great Detour, a book I'm working on, uh, explaining how this uh, uh, concession bargaining began and and developed over the uh, last—under Democrats and Republicans, by the way. And now the question is, is it coming to an end here? Uh, Are unions in these recent settlements giving back even more? Uh, Or have they stopped the concession bargaining? And if they've stopped it, are they clawing back anything? Well, we'll talk about that uh, a little bit here. But I want to talk about the UAW strike. That's uh, the tip of the spear here. The latest, you might say, in this this whole historic trend uh, and whether the trend will be reversed or not. Um, you got to understand when you talk about the strike, which started uh, midnight yesterday, by the way, only uh, three plants, three auto plants, are being struck. Only three. One in each of the big three auto companies. In other words, uh, one at uh, uh, in GM, one in, in uh, Ford, and one in this what's called a company called Stellantis, uh, which bought out Chrysler. Right, Stellantis is the quite Chrysler uh, uh, clone here. Um, so only one of their factories has been actually struck. Oh, only thirteen thousand of the one hundred and forty-six thousand auto workers at these three companies in the U.S. Uh, actually walked out. Now, the media is calling this a big historic event because for the first time, they're striking all three companies. You know, the way the UAW used to do it, it would pick one of the big three. It would just strike all the plants of that one big three auto company, right? Come to an agreement and force that pattern on the other two and then wrap up negotiations you know with the second and the third third co- uh, company right uh, so that was called pattern bargaining and UAW did that for decades uh, but now what we've got is uh, well we're striking all three yeah but only one plant in each now the union says that uh, this is uh, a big strategic They call it strategic development they call this the stand up strike as opposed to the union's famous sit-down strike, you know how they're standing up. I don't know, uh, but anyway, um, this is the the new tactic. You know, the uh, strike all three, but only uh, selective plants. And the union says, "Well, as time goes on, if necessary, we'll expand that to more plants." Well, we we will see uh, whether that's true or not. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, but I'll explain why. Okay, Uh, but you got to also understand what the why the union actually went on strike, even though it's questionable in my mind, this this new tactic, you know, Uh, but the media thinks it's a big deal, you know, historic. You know, they really given this a big spin. Oh, the union's taking on the whole industry. Well, 13,000 walkout isn't going to hurt the companies at all. Especially since the plants that are being struck are not the big profitable uh, models of these companies. You know, the big SUV, <clears throat> SUVs and uh, trucks. You know, which are the big profit centers of these companies, aren't really being struck. It's the uh, less profitable. Uh, models whether they're sedans or or crossovers or whatever you know are being struck so uh, you're not going to hurt these companies very much financially and it may drag out the strike in my opinion if if you know you're you're not going to hurt them look the way they negotiate the way companies negotiate and I was a union negotiator for decades here the way, the way they negotiate is they, they do it uh, you know very rationally, Uh, They know how much it's costing them if they agree to the union's last proposal, right? Uh, They know how much they might lose if you have a true walkout, right? They got this cost calculation. They know how much they're going to lose per day in a true strike, they know how much and they compare it to how much they're going to have to pay. And when that gap between what they've lost and losing uh, closes, gets close to what they got to, to pay the union, uh, then they negotiate again. But if you're only striking 13, uh, I mean, three plants, 13,000, uh, you're not closing that gap for losses for the company very much or very quickly, which means you're going to drag out the strike, in my opinion, unless you got a deal being worked behind the scenes with Biden and the government, which I'll explain, I think, is really going on here. Okay. But you got to understand also that the auto workers have been uh, really taking it in the ear, not just for four decades, but especially since 2019. They were operating under a very weak leadership, and in some cases, corrupt leadership, the UAW was. And they finally threw that corrupt leadership out. But in, in 2019, that corrupt leadership uh, gave massive concessions to the companies when they were still quite profitable. You know, it wasn't COVID yet. 2019, contract negotiations. Uh, the workers at UAW gave up a lot. They gave up their cost of living adjustment, uh, which is a Provision in contracts in which, uh, uh, in addition to their annual wage increase, based upon how much inflation occurred, they get an additional wage uh, bump, uh, wage increase bump here because of inflation. That's called the cost of living adjustment, COLA acronym, right? And, uh, you know, way back, uh, I think it was in the 60s. Um, you know the UAW leadership, Walter Reuther and others uh, uh, pioneered that. Maybe it was even earlier than that. I don't know. Pioneered the cola. The UAW pioneered a lot of uh, provisions uh, in in collective bargaining agreements. It it, it once was the leading union. In terms of innovations and expansion, of collective bargaining agreements. Of course, once we started the concession bargaining, uh, those uh, areas of union expansion in contracts were uh, being devastated and ripped out and changed and so forth. Concession bargaining is giving back. Uh, the things that you gained. And the give backs have been going on for decades, as I said. Uh, but once again, in 2019, what was the picture there? The union, the workers gave up a lot. And they also gave up a lot in concessions and pensions and uh, who was paying for uh, health insurance, You know, uh, monthly premium share payments and so forth, uh, what the starting wage uh, was going to be. Uh, and uh, this this terrible trend of concessions called two tier, two tier uh, wage structure, two tier workforce. Two tier means that oh, the people coming on hiring are going to have different wages uh, and different progressions in their wage increase based on their seniority over time. It's like you got two. Two kinds of citizens, uh, you know, worker citizens here in the company. You you got the ones that have been with us before concession bargaining, and we're going to give them a certain amount. But but you're going to have the lower for new hires, and as the old timers retire, you get new new hires that are in the second tier. So, in other words. Even the wages or benefit increases they give the old timers, the first tier, uh, the company takes a, takes back some of that money uh, that they gave uh, by hiring uh, people in a lower tier as they come on. Two tier, temps, you know, part timers or temps mostly. Uh, this whole idea of temporary is a big advantage to companies too, because if you temp, uh, you're oftentimes uh, don't you? You don't have the same rights uh, under the contract uh, that regular uh, union members have. You have less rights, uh, so the company can hire and fire you easily, and discipline you easily, and not pay you the same uh, vacations or whatever. Right? That's the 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 function of the two-tier to take back what you give to the first tier financially uh, and to give you management more leeway to just do what you want with the the workforce. Okay, two-tier got expanded again in 2019. The start wage today even, not in 2019, the start wage in the auto is $18 an hour. That's this Second tier, right? You started eighteen dollars an hour. In California now you can flip burgers for twenty, but these auto workers are busting their butt for eighteen dollars an hour. All right, So the union has been trying. unions have been trying to um, reverse this two tier, get rid of this two two tier uh, uh, you know disaster. Uh, for for bargaining and that's part of trying to end concession bargaining. Concession bargaining won't be over. it won't you know real contracts won't be restored until this two-tier stuff is totally gone, totally gone, right but we're a long way from from that being totally gone. So the point is to sum up, we had this terrible uh, contract negotiation in 20, uh, 2019. And ever since 2019, with inflation and everything, workers, auto workers, real earnings, in other words, real earnings is their hourly pay times the number of hours they work in in a week, Uh, real earnings adjusted for inflation have gone down 19%. They've taken a 19% wage pay cut in four years. 19%. Now contrast that to the company. Auto company CEOs since 2019 have gotten a 40% pay increase. So the workers look around and they say, 40%? The CEO gets 40% increase in four years, and we've lost 19%? They threw out their corrupt leadership, and they got this new guy, Fame, in there. and. Uh, you know, Fein uh, supposedly is going to end concession bargaining and take take back. We will see. I don't think this strategy of striking only three plants is, is going to get you too far. But anyway, a corporate uh, the corporations are fat with cash. They can certainly afford it. Fat with cash. How much? Well, let's look at it. In the last 10 years, since 2013, the three big auto companies have increased profits by $250 billion. $250 billion. And estimated another $34 billion this year. Oh, that's pretty good. Almost a doubling, a doubling of profits up 92% in 10 years. Now, you're gonna also remember, it's not just profits. The auto companies had gotten a lot of money from the government. In 2008-9, they got an 80 billion dollar bailout from the government. 80 billion bailed out the auto companies. You see, at that time, they had their own uh, uh, financing arms. You know, uh, GM had its, and Ford had its, and and these financing arms uh, speculated in in. Uh, uh, subprime housing, and they lost a lot of money, and they dragged down uh, the the companies too. You know, the auto uh, manufacturing companies, their finance arms did it. Uh, so the government comes in and bails them out, eighty billion dollars. Right? Then in two thousand seventeen, Trump gave massive tax cuts to business and corporations. You know, four and a half trillion dollars over ten years. Well, I think it was eight years. Yeah, I estimated four and a half trillion. Uh, that's another topic. We'll talk about that some other time. Um, how much did the auto companies? Get? I don't know, but they must have got tens of billions of dollars of tax cuts in 2017. Right? Um, since 2017, uh, they've given massive. The companies given massive amount of money back to their shareholders. $66 billion in stock buybacks and dividend payouts, and another $14 billion this year. So $80 they're given to shareholders, $250 billion in profits, plus a bailout of $80 billion, plus Biden now is giving them tens of billions more in subsidies uh, to invest in their electric vehicle plants in the U.S. Yeah, the government, the taxpayer, is paying for these companies to build their plants, Oh, please build them in the U.S. You know, don't build them in Mexico. We'll give you the money to build it. That's what—that's what the Inflation Reduction Act is all about. And then you got the Chip and R&D Act, which is subsidies given, cash thrown at the semiconductor tech companies. Yeah, and then the Infrastructure Bill, and those three bills became acts last year. In amount of $1.65 trillion in subsidies and tax cuts and everything given to corporations under Biden in the past year. Think about that a minute, you know? Biden disassembles the COVID relief and the uh, child care and uh, the rent help and the student help and the uh, You know, uh, unemployment benefits, he he dissembles small business benefits, he dissembles that and he takes the money and he throws more in the pot and he gives it in these three bills to big business. That's what it's all about. And of course, the auto companies are getting a nice big chunk of that with the Inflation Reduction Act, which part of which is to subsidize uh, environmental uh, uh, investment. And of course, electric vehicles are environmental investment. And I don't know how much the, the government is paying uh, the cost to build out uh, these char- electric charging stations across the, the country. Uh, they said 500000 are needed. I know the government is uh, paying for those. I don't know what that number is. But that's on top of the subsidies to build electric vehicle plants. So anyway, the companies are getting tens of billions of dollars more for that. And they're giving their stockholders $80 billion. And they doubled their profits, $250 billion, and they get bailed out all the time. And then they give their CEOs a 40% pay hike since 2019. Well, the auto workers look at this and they say, what the hell's going on? Hey, we gave everything back to keep these companies profitable. You know, We want some of that returned. You know? And that's why the union initially said, oh, we want a 40% a wage hike as well. If the CEOs can afford it, why can't we afford it? We build the darn stuff. Yeah. Uh, that was their initial bargaining uh, position. Of course, the, uh uh, uh, the auto companies and their media friends you know, say, oh, you're going to bankrupt us if you do that 40%. Well, we can't afford that. You're going to bankrupt us. Well, they always say that in negotiations. Oh, well, it's too much. We can't afford it. We're going to go out of business. you know. And then when it's over, they come back and they say, oh, look how much we gave them. And then they overestimate how much they gave them. By the way, let me digress. You can see that occurring with the Teamsters strike. In settlement. Well, they never struck in the settlement, right? Uh, what, what you get is the, uh, the the head of the UPS here uh, saying, oh, you know, the workers now because we were so generous are going to get a, a $170,000 a year in wages and benefits. Yeah. Well, what they don't tell you is that's not your typical UPS driver. You tip 340,000 UPS drivers, over half of them. Like sixty percent, I think, are part-timers still, still, yeah. Uh, that's not what they're getting. Well, that's hundred seventy thousand is is one of these few guys who drive these over-the-road, uh, you know, big rigs carrying from warehouse to warehouse the stuff. You know, there aren't too many of them, and uh, they work a lot of overtime and everything. Hundred seventy thousand, and they were making one hundred forty-five thousand. So over five years. You know, they get a five thousand dollar raise on top of one hundred forty-five for each of the five years to come. That gets them to one hundred and seventy. But that's you know just the, uh, you know that that's like uh, they used to say here uh, when the janitors went on strike. Oh, the janitors are making six figures. You know, but this is that was some some janitor was was working like twenty hours overtime, and he was a a lead man, and uh, uh, you know he was there forty years and whatever. You know, and they. Pick it out, and the media, you know, takes these extreme examples. Anyway, that's a digression on the Teamsters. You know, if we have time, we'll talk about their settlement too, uh, yeah. well, at least in part. But the point I want to make is that auto companies were f- fat with cash, plenty. Look, they don't give their CEOs forty percent increases and pay their shareholders eighty billion dollars if they're losing money. Yeah, they're swimming in it. And they know it. Well, look, how much have they raised the cost of a, a car here in the last three years? Something like 30% increase in price alone? Well, wow. okay. So that's they can afford it, right? The union, when it walked out yesterday, it dropped this 40% to 36%. And the auto companies' last positions were around 20%. Stellantis, uh, you know, which is a weaker company, a little bit less. I think it was seventeen. So seventeen to twenty percent on the table by the companies, and the union was forty, and it walked out, and it's thirty-six. So, so you got a gap between twenty and thirty-six, right? Now, the auto companies aren't going to offer any more without seeing some kind of a strike. The numbers show me. You know, show me that uh, uh, we can't go back to our 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 corporate board of directors and say that we gave you even more uh, without a strike. So show us, right? So the auto workers in Fane are quote showing them, but in a very token way. To me, it looks like a dance of some kind in negotiations. You know, Uh, we we gotta. And the union in these situations likes to let the workers let off some steam a little bit too. I've seen this a lot. You know, oh, we're going to go on strike. They go on strike for two or three days, whatever. You know, in the old phone company, this was typical. Go on strike two or three days, and uh, oh, the company concedes, and the union looks like union leaders look like they got a better better deal for everybody. And then they tell the, the members, but if you stay out any longer, you're going to lose it all, right? And then some. And then the workers say, well, we've got to take what we got here. We got a little bit more. We showed them. And they go back to work within a week. Well, that's not a strike. you know. That's that's just a, a dance, right? Negotiations dance, as I, as I call it. Well <clears throat> anyway, we'll see whether we got a negotiations dance here going on, because uh, what I think is that— uh, they're going to uh, uh, probably fatten their offer a little bit to companies, you know, And uh, they're going to uh, negotiate with Biden because this is a three-way negotiations. These big, big negotiations are always three-way. The government's always in there, right? Especially during during the neoliberal era of industrial policy, you know, these big contracts, the government's in there from the beginning. And by the way, Biden talked with uh, Fain uh, just a couple hours before they walked out, and he talked with the auto companies, too. You know, there's a deal being made behind the scenes, and, and then they ju- it's just a question of revealing it as time goes on, right? Okay, so the auto companies are going to say to, to Biden, uh, look, you know, if we throw some more money in the pot, because the ball's in their corner, the UAW walked out, made the last uh, Move 36 percent. Um, the ball's in their corner, but they're going to look to uh, Biden and say, "Well, you know, if we're going to throw more money in, are you going to increase your subsidies for our electric vehicle uh, investments?" And yeah, uh, you know, the government will find one of their slush funds somewhere to provide more for the auto, and you won't even hear about it. You know, to be be a deal. Yeah, look, we'll get our our you know our people in in. This committee in the Senate and the House, and uh, they'll make this proposal, and they'll do an addendum uh, to to the uh, uh, Recovery Act. Uh, I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act. We'll we'll do an addendum to it quietly, and we'll give you guys more money here if you throw more money on the table, right? And. Uh, the union will not have harmed the company too much with these small token strikes, you know, and uh, but it looks like the union was tough and the company looks like it conceded, you know, some more money here, um, and I think, uh, you know, what we're going to see is a uh, is a settlement uh, pattern, something on the Teamsters settlement maybe, in some ways, yeah. Um, I'll make some predictions of what I, th- what I think may end up here, but first, uh, you know, I, I, I want to say more about this concession bargaining trend. Um, what are some of the elements of concession bargaining that you've seen over the last four decades that uh, this year unions are desperately trying to stop? Uh, well, you know, you weaken the unions by offshoring their jobs. And that began with a vengeance in the early uh, 1980s, by the way, uh, with the politicians giving tax incentives to manufacturing corporations to move offshore. Yeah, they cut the taxes so they can move offshore. They subsidized some of their offshoring investment. It was called an investment tax credit. 7%, 10%, whatever. And the uh, corporations could claim that investment tax credit to, uh, instead of investing in the US and jobs in the US and moving to Mexico or whatever, uh, and get a tax cut from the US government to take jobs offshore. Yeah, right? Uh, The auto companies, in particular, took big advantage of that under Reagan. And just about the entire auto parts industry in the U.S. moved to Mexico. I forget the name of the big one big company out of Dayton, Ohio, had had about 20, 20 factories in the U.S., over 100,000 workers, moved them all to Mexico. Yeah, that's not in counting the assembly companies that still are here, you know, but the parts companies move all to mostly to Mexico, or they move to the southern states. Why do they move? Why they move into Tennessee and Alabama in these places? Because these are what's called right to work states, which is a dumb uh, phrase. Uh, what it really means is uh, no one has to join a union, even if the union uh, uh, wins elections and comes in and has a right to negotiate and represent for everybody. No one has has to be has to pay dues to the union. You can be a freeloader, right? Well, you end up with a a workforce, even if the union's there, that's very weak in terms of uh, union. Uh, So, you know, the whole thing began moving to right to work states or to Mexico, a little bit to Canada. So offshoring of jobs is the way you devastate manufacturing uh, unions and started the big exodus of membership. Uh, Or you subcontract to non-union companies onshore for, for different uh, functions, parts, and so forth, right? Uh, but the other big uh, uh, concession uh, bargaining, as I said, is uh, you uh, uh, create a second tier by hiring part-timers and temps. The big increase in part-time employment in this country, which is like 40 million people are now part-timers, uh, began under Ronald Reagan. Yeah. That's when you see the big surge in the workforce. Before that, there wasn't that many part-timers. Now there's over 50 million part-timers and temp, temp workers. Temps began expanding, which is a kind of part-time, although temps could be full-time too, uh, in the 1990s under uh, uh, Bill Clinton. you know, So the expansion of part-timers and temp opened up a, a huge uh, gap to allow two-tier lower wages and benefits and big savings to the companies. And they, whatever the com- companies paid in contracts, they took away here uh, over time during the length of their contract uh, by replacing full-time workers with part-time at lower wages and benefits, right? And then they underfunded and dumped their true pensions. You know, it used to be all defined benefit pensions. Defined benefit pension is where... Uh, you are guaranteed per year service with the company so much money per month, guaranteed. Company has to pay that no matter what. Right, you're going to get uh, you know I don't know depending on how long you worked for the company or uh, uh, how much you made, uh, et cetera. You know it's kind of like a social security calculation in some ways. Uh, you're going to get that for life for the rest of your life, and the Auto workers used to have a pension, a defined pension, that said 30 or 55. In other words, if you worked 30 years, you got your full pension. Or if you reach 55 and or if you reach the age of 55, you could retire at 55 years old with a full pension from, from the UAW if you worked in the auto industry in the 70s, right? Of course, that's been devastated uh, here. Uh, Health insurance coverage, uh, the costs have been shifted to workers more for monthly premiums, and your deductibles and co-pays have gone up while the coverage has gone down. That's another way the companies took back uh, what they paid people, right? Start pay. Two, two-tier, whatever, lower. All, all these, and at the same time, you know, workers' rights, uh, the right to strike, and uh, uh, you know, other provisions of the contract, seniority provisions, promotion provisions, grievance procedures, and so forth, have all been uh, weakened. All part of this concession bargaining game. And of course, now, as I said, we've got the, the test for concession bargaining going on in unions this year. Is this the end of an era or, or not? Well, looking at some of the key settlements here, um, the Teamster UPS settlement was about 18%, 20% over five, years, over five years. And the Teamsters were able to get a significant reduction in the gap uh, in pay between uh, uh, the second tier and the first tier. They're closing that gap. In other words, the lower-paid people are getting bigger settlements to close that gap, and getting the right to transition to the first tier uh, sooner uh, and uh, other other benefits, other benefits as well. So the teemsters are closed closed the gap on two tier, but they didn't eliminate two tier. You see, it still exists. The companies were able to throw money, and keep it. Throw money at the union, uh, you know, in response to their demand, eliminate two tier, uh, but keep the two tier. Yeah, you know? they they want to. Uh, at at other times when they have more power, they'll try to expand it again. Uh, the longshore settlement here, uh, the longshore West Coast dock workers uh, worked for like nine months before they settled uh, without a contract. Uh, But they got a 32 percent increase over five years again, five years, 32 percent. The longshore workers never got caught in this web of concession bargaining. And they are some of the highest paid, best benefit pensioned workers in the United States still. Some of the best contract, maybe the best contract. You know, if, if you or your family under the longshore have to go to the doctor or dentist or whatever, you know how much you pay per visit? No more than $5. Yeah. It's cradle to grave, everybody in your family, full benefits, health benefits, great pensions, right? High pay. Right? Okay, so uh, that's, um, well, why could they do that? Because you can't offshore the ports, right? Uh, uh, airline pilots, they got a 40% over five years again, recent, because the airlines, you know, now people were returning uh, to flying and they really didn't want to strike. Uh, so the airline pilots, uh, I think an American, you know, got 40%. Uh, I don't know what happened to their two tier or whether they had one, I don't think they have a two tier for the pilots. Um, but they threw money at it and they took the money. Uh, So, you know, that's another pattern here. ILWU, the uh, dock workers, the UPS Teamsters, the airline pilots, um, they are all uh, doing uh, well. Have they given back? No, they're not concessions. Uh, And there are some gains, and they're trying to restore stuff that they lost for 40 years. So they're beginning to march back, but boy, it's a long way to go here, you know, to reverse this great detour and take back some of the concessions they made. You know, the Teamsters have, have started it a little bit. Uh, i as I said, never did it. Uh, transport workers are in the strongest strategic position uh, than public employees, probably, because you can't offshore government <clears throat> and you can influence it a lot through. A lobby in public opinion. But uh, other private sectors, uh, unions and workers are in a more uh, difficult difficult strategic position, particularly manufacturing that moves so much work offshore. You know, in 2000, we had like almost 18, 19 million manufacturing workers. What do we have today? 12? 10? Yeah. Devastating. Offshore. You just send the jobs offshore. And by the way, free trade is the other side of that coin. When the companies move offshore, they produce at lower cost, and they ship the stuff back to the US. But in order to avoid paying tariffs, when they it back, they got free trade. Yeah, that's the whole function of free trade are one of the main functions. So it's the other side of the coin and that and that is all part of neoliberal policy. You know what I'm describing to you the concession bargaining as far as it applies to unions is part of neoliberal industrial policy. You know are the unions now able to reverse neoliberal industrial policy? Well the picture is mixed I think and we'll see what the outcome is with the auto workers to be able to Answer that question. you know, have they stopped concession bargaining and are they challenging neoliberal industrial policy? Now, the unions finally. Uh, I'm not too optimistic in the auto workers case because the auto workers have tied themselves so closely to the Democratic Party. And as I said, there's this game, this negotiations game in my opinion that's going on behind the scenes. They have an idea, all three leaders. You know The CEOs, the auto companies, Fain and the uh, UAW, and Biden, they have an idea where they're going to get to. But the question is how they get there and what it looks like so that they get buy-in by, on the corporate side, their shareholders, on the union side, their members, right? And on the politician side, Congress, right? It's a three-way negotiation. And they got a plan of how to get there. Uh, they don't want to—unions and the government don't want to devastate the auto companies with a you know, drag-out strike like they used to do, right? So it's a token thing going on here. Uh, and can Biden come through and give the corporations more subsidy or not? How much—if uh, they see some pledge by Biden, how much more will they actually give? Uh, you know the union to get the the strike settlement here settled here. You know how much will they need to look like they're being tough? You know will the union have to expand to a you know another half dozen plants maybe, and uh, to to give uh, uh, the corporations and the CEOs to be able to say that their are their boards of directors well look you know we're going to lose more in here we can give a little more to prevent losing even more um, and then the government of course is playing in in this mix as well right uh, so what do I predict here uh, as a possible possible emphasis here uh, terms of the settlement uh, in an end game here at some point you know a couple of weeks down the road uh, well I think it's going to be a five-year deal like the others, the other unions. I mean, look, the union's at four. Companies that said four and a half. That tells me, well, if we had another year, we'll give you a little bit more money, right? Because they usually pay a, a lot less in the out years than they do up front here. Uh, I think the pay settlement uh, the cost of the, of the wage bill here will probably be around 25% or maybe a little bit more you know the unions at 36 the companies at 20 uh, depends how much subsidy uh, promise that you know biden throws throws into the mix here for the subsidy somewhere between 25 30% they're not going to get as much as the longshore 32% but 25% you know, allows them the union to say, "Well, we got more than the teamsters; they only got 20, right?" Uh, the start pay will have to be increased significantly—$18 an hour. Come on, top pay $32. Uh, they'll close that gap, okay? They'll close that gap just as the teamsters did in their negotiations. They set the uh, the the pattern for closing the two-tier pay gap, but they won't get rid of the pay. Uh, Pay gap, the two tier rather. Uh, What about cola, cost of living? Well, boy, the auto workers have taken it in the ear for giving up their cola in 2019. Uh, That'll have to be restored, but they don't have to restore it right away. You know, they'll say, well, in the third year, or fourth year of the continent, uh, cola will be restored. So, you know, not a big cost item. It will probably be in a deep recession by then, so prices won't be as as uh, aggressive as they are now, and the companies won't have to pay it, right? What about the conversion uh, to defined benefit pensions for everybody? Um, I think the company will throw some uh, um, language in the contract that will allow the second tier uh, to convert to the defined benefit pension system sooner, sooner. Uh, than they are are right now. I don't know what the number is after five years or something. Uh, Whether they give up their 401k contributions to get into the defined benefit plan, probably here. Uh, I don't know whether you can have both. I don't think so. Uh, But I'm not sure in the contract which it is. But they're better off with a defined benefit pension. Here, Uh, the unions also asked for a four-day work week. Well, that's D.O.A. They're not going to get that, in my opinion. Here, right? Uh, Unless they really struck them and really did a deal uh, in the traditional union sense, right? Um, But the dance will go on. The dance will go on. I think. And as far as uh, uh, minimal, uh, I mean, as far as concession bargaining ending, I would. Sum up saying uh, yes, the Teamsters ended it, but uh, minimal restoration, and it's a long march back. The ILW, uh, as I said, never got sucked into that, so it's uh, not a question of you know concession bargaining. Returning uh, the airlines uh, took money up front, the railroad workers uh, took it in the ear, uh, and the UAW is yet to be determined. Uh, but let's not forget the most important strike for, for the future that it is strike and ongoing, and that's the uh, current strike with the, uh, the writers and actors, SAG AFTRA. Um, that's an ac- acronym for the writers and the uh, uh, actors guild, guild, whatever, right? Uh, that strike is ongoing right now. And it's a serious, the most important struggle, I think, because it's a struggle against artificial intelligence and technology that threatens to destroy jobs. You know, Goldman Sachs Bank Research, uh, I think a year ago, uh, put out a report that said AI is going to destroy, get this, 300 million jobs are going to be wiped out or downgraded globally because of AI. Because of AI. And you know, uh, the Senate had closed door meetings with these big tech CEOs, you know, uh, Zuckerberg and uh, and uh, Musk and all these guys, closed door meetings about the threat of, of AI. Well, why is it closed door? You know, why are they meeting because it's closed I'll tell you why because AI is the key technology for next generation military weapons. That's why. And the U.S. is terrified that China is accelerating its AI development. That's why they're trying to get chips, uh, boycott uh, semiconductor chips from China, because, you know, AI, if you put it into uh, military weapons and so forth, then uh, you've got to have chips uh, that uh, can handle it uh, So that's why it's behind closed doors. It's not because they're worried about what AI will do to civilization or the destruction of the jobs. They're not worried about that. The AI train has left the station. They're not going to stop it. There's too much money to be made. But the SAG and AFTRA writers are at the tip of that spear of massive job destruction coming because of our technology in this country. And they are the first strike. In some ways, it's the most important struggle going on, actual strike. The other ones they've bought off, right? But these Hollywood movie uh, TV moguls here, you know, they are they make money in lots of ways. And, uh, you know, they're just waiting out the... Uh, it's gonna gonna be a long strike, hard you know, long struggle, long strike. Uh, but it's the key key fight, you know, and they deserve our support in various ways. Okay, uh, the great detour is it ending? Well, in some ways, it's been stopped in its tracks in some of these negotiations. We'll see whether uh, the great dance going on here with the auto workers. Uh, negotiations is part of that. Saying no more concessions, but even if you say no more concessions, it's a long way back. Right? People don't realize that in nineteen seventies, the unions were very powerful and got big wage increases. As I've written and researched, you know, I actually did my, uh, PhD, my uh, PhD thesis, you know, on uh, in part on the the strikes in the early nineteen seventies. Get this. Unions, including the auto workers and Teamsters at the center of that mix and ILWU and so forth, and construction workers. In 70-71, we're getting wage and benefit gains in only a three-year contract. No one negotiated more than three years back then. We're getting wage and benefit gains of 25% in the first year of a three-year agreement. 25% 25% gains, auto workers, steel workers, teamsters, longshore workers, 25%. That's when the big attack was decided to go after the unions. They went after construction unions first and busted them. And then, uh, as I said, the Chrysler workers in manufacturing and then offshoring under Reagan and so forth. Transport workers, they deregulated uh, the industry, the trucking industry, and the airline industry, and brought in more competition to drive down prices and then let the companies drive down wages, which happened. That was the beginning of industrial policy under neoliberalism. But the big gains were made, and big gains. I mean, can you imagine workers getting 25% raise in the first year of a contract today? No. You know, at best, they get over five years. It takes them five years to get close to that now. And that's a big victory. You know, like the UPS was definitely a victory for union unions, but it didn't really roll back all the concessions. Okay, so that's my take. Wow, I spent a lot of time on uh, the UAW and uh, discussing this. Uh, very quickly, uh, the inflation reports here CPI came out this week, and PPI, uh, once again we see the same thing. We see inflation creeping back up. This is the general picture. Last year I wrote, in the summer I wrote an article, The Anatomy of Inflation. Go read it on my blog, JackRasmus.com, it appeared in Counterpunch and LA Progressive and so forth. The Anatomy of Inflation. Sure. I dissected what were the causes of inflation last year, which was raging, right? I'm writing another revisiting uh, the anatomy of inflation piece. Check it out on my blog next week. Uh, And what is the picture based on the latest CPI? Well, it's a continuation in some ways of what happened last year. The big cause of inflation last year was on supply side issues and price gouging by corporations. And what do you see now? Why is inflation? Creeping back up in the CPI in the last two months. Well, if you look at the composition, you know, look, peel the onion, look behind the scenes, and what do you see with the uh, see with the report? You see services prices still stuck at around six percent, five point nine percent once again for the last four months. Services, the cost of services prices, at six percent. In other words. The Fed rate hikes hasn't haven't budged that. They're stuck at six percent. And by the way, Fed Chair Powell a year ago was saying, oh, you know, our target has to be services, because that's where inflation is really the big problem. So, you know, in summary, it hasn't been successful in reducing services prices. They're still at 6%. Now, over the last year, goods prices for things, you know, durables, non-durable goods, including Gasoline, oil, natural gas, and so forth, right? Those are goods. That's food. That's goods inflation, right? That has come down. That came down over last year, you know, in part because the U.S. flooded the oil markets with. You know, its strategic petroleum reserve. It dumped it onto markets and lowered the price. Well, it's dumped most of it. you can't do that anymore. They depleted the strategic petroleum reserve, so that option does not exist. And now OPEC is raising its prices, and Russia's going along with it, and they're drifting away from American sanctions here. Uh, and uh, supply is being constricted globally for global crude, and prices are going up in the U.S. Uh, companies are passing those on. And we see now gasoline prices rising significantly in the last two months, particularly last month, 10% increase just last month. And fuel oil going up because they know winter's coming, right? Natural gas is going to follow pretty soon. We have price gouging by the oil companies again, and that's driving up goods prices that went down and were almost totally responsible for the decline in inflation over the winter and early spring. Now we got some up, chronic service prices stuck at six percent, and goods prices, especially inflation in oil and gasoline energy going up again. And we have continuing price gouging going on also by processed food companies, you know, meat packers and, and so forth, and uh, baked baked goods and insurance companies, right? and uh, other other select areas of well, monopolistic control of corporations three or four running the whole industry and auto uh, and oil companies you know uh, big monopolistic uh, sector driving up goods prices again on top of chronic stuck 6% services prices the question is will the fed next week raise interest rates again to try to dampen this renewed surge in inflation, or will it say, OK, we're just going to hold pat? Well, investors and the bankers are, are begging and demanding mm-hmm. that it holds pat. It doesn't raise interest rates. I was predicting they're going to raise it one more time. We'll see. I think it's 50-50 whether the Fed raises rates next week or not. Now, if they should, inflation's going up. But the bankers are worried, you know, especially the small regional banks, you know, you raise interest rates, you're going to renew the crisis in the bank, regional banking sector we saw earlier this year. So the Fed's in a, in between a rock and a hard place. It's a big contradiction. But inflation's going back up. No doubt about it. You know, how fast is the o- only question. And even if the Fed does not raise rates, it's going to keep them high for quite some time. And uh, it's a contradiction in uh capitalist neoliberal monetary policy, contradiction, just as we see a neoliberal industrial policy being challenged right now. And of course, neoliberal fiscal policy is really getting a challenge uh, with the huge deficits that we've got. Okay. I'm out of here next week. We'll see about the Fed. And the answer to the auto strike. Right.